The Mac Observer's Mac Geek Cab, episode 841 for Monday, November 2nd, 2020. And welcome to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek of the show where you send in all your questions, your tips, your cool stuff found. We mix them all together. We mash it up. We string it together in an agenda. And we try to answer your questions. We share your tips. We share your cool stuff found. We share some tips and cool stuff found of our own with the goal being that each and every one of us learns at least five new things every single time we get together. So we got three sponsors for this episode, uh, and they include TextExpander.com slash podcast, Linode.com slash MGG, and Mac.Cashfly.com. I'm trying to experiment today. I am going we, – we, we'll talk about those later, right, because it's how, how we do it. Uh, we value your time. We also value our sponsors. Uh, we try to make the messages as uh, concise and succinct as possible so that you get what you need out of it without uh, us taking, you know, like five minutes per sponsor or anything. So I am going to try later in the show, you'll notice, uh, to get all three of those sponsors done in less than four minutes. And if I do that, I'd love it if you just went and visited each of them uh, to check them out. Whether you buy or not, as always, is between you and the sponsor. But we would love it if you went and checked them out. So, again, it's textexpander.com slash podcast, linode.com slash mgg, and mac.cashfly.com. And with that, here in Durham, New Hampshire, I'm Dave Hamilton. And here in Fairville, Connecticut, this is John F. Braun. Yeah, man. It's, uh, it's happy. Let's see. We got happy November. We've got happy return from, uh, from daylight saving time. Uh, right. Mm-hmm. Cause we're, you know, we're out of that now here in the U S anyway. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's a nice crisp fall morning here while you and I are recording this at least. So, I mean, we're indoors, so it's, it's you know, it's warm and like climate controlled as you might expect, but you no, know, it's nice. That's mm-hmm. yeah. good. Yeah. All right. Good. Good. Uh, you want to take us off? Uh, take us off? I don't know what that means. You want to kick us off? Start <laughs> us off? off eh? Take off. That's right. It's not the great white north here. At least not yet. Uh, yeah. Take us to Keith. All right. Well, Keith, here's a quick tip that I had no idea about. Do a long push on the App Store in iOS. Um, and you can go straight to updates. Um, this saves messing about and opening the app store and then clicking on your picture to the get to the same place. Yeah. So, uh, so get to where you need to go right away. I love that around. Yeah, man. Um, and I'll throw one in here, which I didn't know about originally, but um, there's a similar feature on the uh, on Mac OS as well. Um, if you see a little dialogue saying updates available, do you want to install them now? Click on that box and it'll bring you to the app store. Right to so, the updates. Similar page. tip. Yeah, that's right. Yes, that's right. Oh, man, I wish I I don't know how long this has been there in iOS. The, you know, the the press and hold on the app store to bring you to the updates page. But it, finding out about it today is later than I wanted to find out about it. I, I mm-hmm. like I, I, I even if it's only been days or weeks that it's been there, it's too late. I wanted to know about it the moment that was there. My guess is it might have been there in iOS 13. That's outstanding. Good. Cool. 
Another tip that uh, that I love back in show 839, we were talking about some of the changes in Big Sur. And one of them that made me very happy is that in the Big Sur messages app, you can uh, shift return to put a carriage return in a single message, something you can easily do on iOS. But unless you like copied and pasted, unless I copied and pasted from mail into messages or, you know, some text editor into messages, I couldn't put a carriage return in. Well, listener David to the rescue, he said, uh, when you mentioned this, in my case, at least on my MacBook Pro, I can do the same thing on Catalina by hitting option control return. So or control option return. Like why that's what it is in Catalina. I have no idea. David says, I'm not sure how I found out about that, but I think it works all the way back to Yosemite. And he says, of course, it's a huge help when sending longer messages. So, yeah, it was for me, it was shift return in Big Sur and in Catalina, it is control option return. So thank you, David. Mm -hmm. That's uh, another great one, which I've already started using. So, yeah. Yavol. All right. Uh, you have one more, John, right? One more quick tip? Uh, yeah. So uh, I got this. What is this, John? Not every Most people are not watching. That's an iPad Air fourth generation. Okay. So I upgraded from my iPad Air first generation because it's old and it won't even right. run iOS 14. So, um, but yeah, so a so, uh, couple of things. So one thing... The, the migration is really cool on this. So you put this near, when you put it near the the original machine, it's like, hey, I see this other machine. You want to migrate from it? And it's like, yeah, sure. Um, it was pretty smooth. Um, a couple of, uh, the only thing that threw me was this setting did not make it over. And that is settings, password. Or what happened is when when I went to sites, it would bring up, uh, it, it would offer to fill in the password, but it wasn't doing it from LastPass. It was doing it from iCloud Keychain, which I don't really use. Sure. So just a note, settings, passwords, autofill passwords, and then you'll see the eligible module or modules that you can use. Um, and I selected LastPass and then I'm good. Um the other thing I noticed in that dialogue, which I think is something new, Dave, is that there's a settings, passwords, security recommendations, detect compromised passwords. I'm not sure exactly how they know that, but there's the lists uh, like I don't know if LastPass does it, but one password subscribes to mm. those lists and compares your passwords locally on device uh, mm -hmm. against the 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 list of known like breaches mm. so that you know and and it, yeah apple's doing it too yeah no that's pretty cool i i like that for sure um but here's another thing uh that's new on this machine so the last machine dave um had a lightning port this ipad has a USB-C port so then i wondered hmm well it has wi-fi and it has cellular but I happen to have an Anchor USB-C dongle with an Ethernet port that I use frequently when I need to do fast transfers on my local network. I was like, hmm, I wonder what happens if I plug it into the iPad. Will it work? And yes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, 
all of a sudden, it, once you plug in the adapter and it's connected to Ethernet, you'll see an Ethernet item uh, show up in the, the, the list of networking options. That's awesome. I thought it was pretty cool. The throughput is kind of weird. I got to figure out why is that uh, in theory, I should be getting like maximum speed um, doing a speed test and it would start off. Um, it would start off with the speed of my uh, connection or close to it, 200 megabits down, but then it would start degrading and I, I don't know why. And did, this did not happen on my Mac mini, which is also uh, ethernet. So, huh? But it's a, but it's a nice option in case you uh, don't have wireless and you have uh, ethernet, just, you know, make sure to bring your, uh, bring your uh, USB-C thing with you. Right. Right. Yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah. Well, and, and like you said, the same one that would work with your, you know, your newer MacBook would work with your iPad. And that's a handy thing to have. Yeah. And as Warren in the chat room points out, uh, that iPad, along with, I think, all the other current iPads Pro has Wi-Fi 6 in it as well, which is good. So now so, okay. someday our Macs I mean, this, will get this... Wi-Fi 6, but, you know, iPhones mm -hmm. and iPads have it. So it's good. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's nice to be able to use my existing adapters with the uh, the iPad. The thing is, you could. Uh, so I'm like, wow, I wonder if I could have done this on my old device. And the answer is yes, there are lightning to Ethernet adapters. Yes. Uh, out there. Yes. Yeah. It's it Which, uh, really it. And it, no, but this brings up a good point, right? Because. It is a USB port. I mean, I know now it's actually a USB port, but even Lightning mm -hmm. is just an Apple's custom interface to a USB port. And mm -hmm. and so, yes, I mean, you can plug other things into it. And that's what we found out years ago with what Apple called the camera connection kit, which had had that USB A port on it. And then you could plug other things in, including you know, a, a a dock with with an Ethernet port and and even other USB devices and it would work fine. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah, of course, now you get plugged more in. Um, yep. Yeah, and the other thing is, I had um uh I have a uh, one of these flash drives that has a Lightning port and a USB A port. Right. Well, the Lightning port is no longer on this machine, but a USB A port is also part of the Anchor dock. So. Yep. I plugged that in and, you know, was able to browse the files on it using the files app. So cool. Well, that's awesome. That's great. I'm, I, I, other like, I mean, I, I know these specific things are cool, but in general, are you liking the new iPad? Oh yeah. I mean, you know, the touch ID, it's, it's nice to have that. Um, and because there's touch ID, you can do uh, Apple pay on it. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, you can do Apple pay with face ID as well. I mean, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, like yeah, that's interesting. I wonder how often you would find yourself using. Oh, I guess it like in Safari, Apple Pay. Um, um, you wouldn't be using like it doesn't have NFC to use Apple Pay to register. That's only in the phone, I think. Mm -hmm. Right, but but you're you're talking about Apple Pay like on a website that supports Apple Pay in Safari. Yeah, yeah, is that the the functionality is now on the iPad, whereas with my old iPad, it would have to reach out to another device like my phone to in order authenticate. To, to do the Apple Pay. Right. Yeah. Right. It's contained. Yeah. 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 Wow. Oh, cool. Cool. That's yeah, great. No, it's yeah. very nice. I I got Apple's. Um, I'll have to look at 
the cases. I got Apple's folio, which is okay. I mean, you know, it has the magnets and stuff and you can, uh, you know, uh, have a tilt uh, if you want. But I, I was oh, looking yeah. because there's a, I mean, they got the magic keyboard and uh, they have, uh, I forget what they call it, but they have a case that has a keyboard and a trackpad, which is, is right. neat too. So it makes it almost like a real computer. Yeah, well, I think it is a real computer. It just has a different operating system yeah. on it. But yeah, well, but, but, you know, what you have there and what anybody with an iPad Pro has is presumably something not dissimilar to what an Apple Silicon based notebook would from apple would be right i mean the ipad even the the development units are basically ipads in a mac mini ish you know presentation uh but but that's you know that's where this is coming from so yeah very interested to see what we what we get hopefully this month with some apple silicon announcements so it should be pretty cool all right shall we move on to uh to cool stuff found Sure. All right. Cool. That's great, man. I'm glad you like that machine. That's great. I'm, uh, I'm, I've been considering one of those here, too. So this is good. Uh, listener Mike has something to add to our conversation about weather apps and widgets. And he said Weatherline uh, is his favorite weather app. Uh, it's got widgets that you can add to iOS 14's home screens showing temperature conditions and then quickly within the day. Uh, and he says the app itself has a great presentation with not a lot of clutter. I agree. I had never heard of Weatherline before until Mike sent this in and I am duly impressed. I, I downloaded it and bought a year's subscription to the, you know, to kind of the full feature set, but man, I'm, I, I did not, uh, I did not expect to be, pleasantly uh, informed about new weather apps. I thought I had kind of gone through them all, but this is great. So thank you, Mike. Hmm. Great stuff. Yeah. Uh, it's it, the presentation is, you know, everybody has their, we all have our own different sort of ways of thinking about the weather and wanting to digest information about the weather. And, and so I, I, you know, there's been one that has worked for me and then they telecast where weather underground retired in telecast and, then they split it into two apps, which is a little weird. The weather underground app and the storm radar app. This sort of brings it all together ish uh, in a different way, but a way that kind of works for my brain. So it's pretty good. You had a, uh, you had an iOS 14 thing, right, John, that you were messing around with. Yes. So, um, two features. So one, I got a message from, uh, uh, Verizon saying, Hey, we got this, uh, uh, you know, new, uh, new feature for, uh, for spam callers because, uh, Verizon makes a, uh, plugin, which they now make free the basic version that'll identify spam calls. Okay. Um, and they just sent the note saying, Hey, if you want, if you want this working on iOS 14, here's what you got to do. Settings, phone, call blocking and identification, silence junk callers. Oh, Okay. Interesting. So that's their spin on this. Now, there's also another thing in there that I did not have enabled, and it's changed my life. Well, <laughs> it's made the phone a lot less annoying um, because I almost every day, I don't know about you, but almost every day I get a call from a number that either pretends to be me and that it has the first six digits so that, you know, they, they figure they can bamboozle me to answer it, or it's just, it's not a number I know. And sure. 
that is enabled by settings phone silence unknown callers, which I did not have on. Oh, but now right. I have both of these on. So I only get calls from people I want to hear from. That's good. Yeah, I um you know, I use my phone for for business more and more. Uh so there are I was thinking exactly what I think you're gonna say. Yeah, the unknown caller thing doesn't really work for me because I, I routinely get calls from people that you know I don't have in my contacts, but I definitely want to talk to. I I don't I'm I'm pretty efficient at getting rid of uh, those, you know, um, whatever the, the people that I, that I don't want to talk with, uh, the ones, like you said, where they match the first six digits of your number, that's easy. I know that's not anybody that I want to talk with calling me. So I, I just ignore those. But otherwise, if I find that I, I have answered the call and it's someone that wants to use my time up in a way that I don't, uh, have a, an allowance in my schedule for at the moment, I, um, uh, my response is, oh, this is great. Uh, I appreciate you calling. Thanks so much for your time. That line. Thanks so much for your time. Me saying it to them like they've called me, but I say to them, thanks so much for your time. What it does is it signals the end of the phone call, right? Like normally they'd be saying it to me when we finish with whatever their spiel is. But I like to be polite to people. So I just say, thanks so much for your time. It usually trips them up enough that that we get to wrap up the call. Uh, sometimes they will push through that. And mm. at that point, I'm happy to continue the process of hanging up the phone. But but I do thank them for <laughs> their time. Well, no, it works out really well because there's, there's that social contract that we have mm. where it's like, oh, at the end, we say this thing. So I just jump to that and and I say the phrase and it, it, it you know, it helps. So there's another little quick tip for you. Thanks so much for your time. I don't know. I use that um, at trade shows when someone engages me and mm. I can tell that it's something I'm not interested in. I'm like, look, I, pre you know, I appreciate you. But yeah, yeah. I'll use the same line. As, yeah. You know, I'll, I'll close things out saying, wow, you know, that really sounds great, but it's really not my, you know, not my, my gig, but thanks for your time. But thanks for your time. Be polite. No, and, that's it. And that, that, that that's totally smart. That's the man. end of the conversation. That's, right. It signals this, this, this social contract that we all sort of have with each other. Like, Oh crap. How did we get to the end of the conversation buzzer? Like I didn't want us to I, be. Here. I remember because you and I probably both did this, or, or when we were, you know, in the early days of Mac Observer, when we went to trade shows. The thing is, I felt obligated to listen to uh, the presenter's entire spiel. Sure. The thing is, it was taking up a lot of my time that I could use more effectively. So that's it. At some point, you got to learn how to end things move moving along yeah exactly yep right <laughs> speaking of moving along patrick uh sent in this cool stuff found for us that uh is like i'm shocked that this, i i haven't dug into it enough to know how it's possible for this to exist but he said he found it over on rick ford's macintosh site which has been around forever uh it's called retroactive and it's at version 1.9 what retroactive does is it lets you run older software like Aperture, iPhoto, and iTunes on macOS Catalina and macOS Big Sur. Uh, you can run Xcode 11.7 on Mojave, Final Cut Pro 7, Logic Pro 9. Like, it's amazing what this thing is doing. My guess is it somehow has the libraries that don't exist uh, in the current OSs and and funnels them through this. I, I don't know. I, like, I haven't dug into it, but 
it it does what it says it will do. And it's available on GitHub. So go grab it before, you know, somebody calls GitHub and tells them to take it down because GitHub keeps caving to these things. So uh, but like YouTube DL, uh, uh, which hopefully the EFF will deal with. Uh, but uh, but yeah, retroactive one point nine. So thank you, Patrick. Very cool stuff. Uh, this is this is what we love about cool stuff. Found. Like I said, I have no idea how they're doing this, John, but it's they did it, which is great. So there you go. Nice. Yeah. Hey, I assume you haven't messed with it yet. Sounds like you're probably going to the no. way you're, I can tell. Uh, Bruce brings us a cool stuff found reprise. It's been about three or four years since we've mentioned ping plotter. And Bruce says, uh, when I was in network support function almost 20 years ago, I routinely used this program called ping plotter to, uh, Trace the routes to and from remote nodes. He said back in episode 824, you were addressing a user's question about different programs to do this. And he says, I use ping plotter. He says, uh, it actually did a series of trace route commands to probe each node on the path to the target. And now they've got a Mac version, which installs as a normal Mac app. Doesn't require like homebrew or anything. And, uh, and he says, I no longer have need to use this, but, I know it would be helpful in these scenarios. And you're absolutely right. We've mentioned ping plotter, as I said on the show before, but it's been a long time. So I wanted to, to with Bruce's note reminding us, I wanted to bring it back, but yeah, it really helps to kind of highlight and identify what's going on and where things are going on your network and, and where things mm -hmm. like in the tree of things, like, is it a local problem? Is it a problem getting to my cable modem? Is it a problem past my provider? You know, that kind of thing can be really helpful when you're diagnosing network problems. So thank you very much, Bruce. Good stuff. Yeah, I actually, uh, I was like, huh, you know, that sounds familiar. I have it on one of my, or I had it on my MacBook Pro and I run, yeah. And when you run it, the, the nice thing about it is that it graphically shows you the performance of each node. So it's easy to see who the troublemaker is because, mm. you know, the graph will, you know, it, 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 there's a line that indicates the, uh, the turnaround time. Got it. So, uh, cool. Yeah. So, uh, rather than using regular old ping, which isn't graphical, um, but yeah, I guess it's just running ping lots of times and <laughs> collecting all of the data. Collect yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yep. Cool. All right, John, we had uh, some malware this week, or maybe not malware this week, but there were some interesting things. And uh, why, don't you, why don't you bring us into this world, explain what, what you know, and we'll, we'll share. Because I, I went through some of this experientially, but, uh, but let, you go ahead and kick it off, my friend. Uh, okay, well, yeah, so we, we got a, a note from John. Um, saying, this is new as of today, 10-23-20 on Friday. I got this message on my laptop, and the message, which you can't see, but I can see, uh, is HP device monitoring dot framework will damage your computer. And then a little checkbox, report malware to Apple to protect other users. Um, so let's see. Let's continue here. Um, it had... So he saw this in the finder um, and he trashed it, I guess, because that's what it recommends you do. Uh, 
Uh, after his work assignment, I came home to find the same message on my home office computer. Uh-oh. I did a malware scan, uh, and it came up clean. Um, and then he asked what printers I but it wasn't the printer problem. So, um, and I, I saw this uh, uh, in my Facebook feed, and the original theory was uh, th- this is the message that uh, Apple's X-Protect uh, will throw up if it detects malware. So that's what a lot of people thought this was, but as it turns out, that is not what it was. Um, what it was is uh, uh, this dandy R- HP revoked a certificate that they shouldn't have, and this—that's um, what this message was really saying. It, it, I think it's the same message that Xprotect has, but it, it came up for a different reason, and. Uh, uh, the folks over at eclecticlight.co have a nice article called What Happened with Security Updates and HP Printer Software? And he goes into detail about. Yeah, Howard rocks. Why this is, happened. Which is good. Yeah, Howard Oakley over at Eclectic Light. We talk about his utilities all the time. T- time Machine Mechanic and and uh, I can't remember mm-hmm. the name of the iCloud one. Oh, Cirrus, right? The iCloud one. But yeah, so I experienced this, John. Uh, and it for me, it started on 1023 that Friday and I was away last weekend. We just went up to the lake with Lisa's uh, parents after, of course, we all got tested because that's what you do these days. Anyway, at least it's what we do. Uh, but anyway, uh, so I thought, well, crap, I'll deal with this when I get home. But I couldn't print. Right. I have an old HP printer and I could not print. The only way I was able to get it to print was to direct it through my router or my disk station, which I have set up to expose my non-AirPrint printer as an AirPrint printer and so, or a Bonjour print server, which is the same thing. So thankfully, I was able to get like the one thing that I need print, needed printed, which was my packing list so that I could pack stuff and go. But uh, it was like, oh, crap, I got to deal with this. But I fought with it a little bit. I like... Uh, you know, like listener, John, I ran malware bytes, nothing. I ran clean my max malware scanner. Cause we were talking about, you know, how one finds things that the other doesn't for me, I've had more things found by clean my Mac than malware bytes. And so, uh, you know, so I ran all that stuff, nothing. I, you know, trashed the folder, reset my printing system, right? Cause you know, you right click on, in the printer's preference pane and reset the printing system. I deleted my library printer's HP folders so that it would be forced to redownload from Apple. Same problem, same problem, same problem. It's like, okay, but let me get this printed. I'll deal with it when I come back. Thankfully, uh, Howard and and like Thomas Reed from Malwarebytes and, and others were busy over the weekend solving this for us. And yeah, so what happened is HP can't revoke the cert, but HP can ask Apple to revoke the cert and Apple revoked the cert. I think what happened was Apple didn't ask HP, why are we revoking a certificate that will cause hundreds of thousands of people to not be able to print, right? Like that is a good question to ask for Apple. And John Martellaro ranted about this on, on daily observations earlier this week. And, and, and he had some really salient points that he made. It's, I highly recommend going back and listening. Uh, but why they did this is still sort of a mystery. And finally, over the weekend, you know, this sort of unraveled and Apple 
reinstated the certificate. So unrevoked it, I guess would be the right way to say. I don't know what the right terminology is, John, but, you know, they they, they undid what they did. And but it didn't fix it for everyone. It certainly didn't fix it for me. Now, I am running a very old HP printer. There are no HP based drivers for it that would work. It certainly not in Catalina, but I don't even think there were Mojave based drivers for this printer. So uh, I use Apple's default drivers for HP. And even after Apple reinstated the cert and days went by, I still could not print. So what I did was I removed the printer from system preferences. I reasoned that maybe it just needed to kind of get a full refresh now that the certs are right. So I removed the printer. Then I went to the library, not home library, but the root level of my hard drive library printers folder. And I removed the HP folder in there. Then when I, then I went back into system preferences, I told it, you know, detect, find printers. It found my printer. It said, yeah, we think this is the right driver, which is the one I always use. I said, yes, go. And it downloaded the new drivers and now everything has worked since. So I needed to kind of go through that process of just fresh. So yeah, it, it was, I, again, I would love to know like why they, they asked to revoke this cert, but you know, I'm not, I don't know. I maybe, maybe that answer is out there. I, I don't know it. So I don't know if you heard anything about that, John. No. Okay. Just that the problem should should go away. Yeah, the problem the problem is the the root of the problem is gone. It it's just, you know, are there lingering effects of it on on your Mac and hopefully going through the steps I went through would would clear that out. Essentially, you got to remove the printer, remove all traces of the driver from your Mac and then pull down, you know, the new version or or not a new copy of the driver it doesn't have to be a new version for sure but just the new copy mm-hmm. of it would that seems to be the thing that fixes it so yeah i don't uh yeah and the and and you know warren who listened to that uh, that interview with john martellero uh said that john was upset about the warning message too yeah mine was a little i got the one that that you uh that the listener john wrote in about so we got three johns here martellero braun and and listener, John, trying to keep it all straight in my head. I don't know how you're keeping it straight in your head, folks. But uh, it, but the one he saw, I did eventually see. But my first one was something about like fax control. But it was the same message. It was obvious that it was related to the printer and, it you know, the printing process. The worst part about this is my initial symptom was that things would not print but I got no error message whatsoever. So I would print something. I could, I could look at it in the print queue. Cause I knew it was supposed to come out of the printer, you know, and it didn't. So I printed again, but this time I watched it and it went through. It said looking for printer. And then the job just disappeared. No error message, no nothing. So then I had to stop and think part of my workflow for like, you know, the work that we do is there are things that we still file around the office on paper. I know it's kind of weird, but it's just how the workflow is. And I use that as my safety net to make sure things have been processed. So like when a new order comes in, I print a copy of the order. Now I might not go get it today uh, from the printer. I do once a week, I go through and and make sure that the order has been processed. And the the fact that it's sitting in my printer is my current, uh, 
you know, trigger to do that. And then we file it in, on paper so that we have a paper copy of the order in the files and all that good stuff. So it's the same copy and it, it works out. Uh, I had to stop and look back and make sure that I didn't miss anything that should have just magically been sitting in the printer because it's how my workflow goes. Because again, I didn't get error messages that it did not print. And that was the part that scared me. It, it worked out that I encountered the problem early enough. And thankfully it was just my packing list. So I knew it didn't print. And that was, that was the only thing, but it was a, yeah, it was a dangerous, you know, yeah. Dangerous thing. So, yeah, I don't know. We got more about malware though. Don't we, John? Maybe a cool stuff found, I think. Oh, boy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So Jim wrote in to let us know about another program uh, that we use the tech malware. So um, so he says, consider Patrick Wardell's free Mac security products. So one he mentions is ransomware, which we already talked about in a prior show. But then there's another one that uh, he recommends, and it's called Block Block. Uh, and it's been updated for Big Sur. And here's the short explanation. BlockBlock Block provides continual protection by monitoring persistence locations. Any new persistent component will trigger a BlockBlock Block alert, allowing malicious items to be blocked. What does that mean? What does it mean, John? Enlighten me. <laughs> I, I remember well, talking at the, do, about Block Block after I saw Patrick speak at Mac Tech uh, a year or two ago, mm-hmm. and 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 I and I understood it at the time and was very excited about it and talked about it on the show. And now I don't know what it does. So please tell me what it does. Oh, wait, no, I'm sorry. It's called Knock Knock, not Block Block. Oh, I think he has, Knock Knock. Mm, well, there no, there's a utility called Block Block from Patrick. I think that's the one you meant. I mean, it, it's linked from Patrick's website right here. Yeah. Knock, knock. Block, right? block. No. Block, block. Is the one. Oh, okay. I mean, he might have a utility right. called knock, knock. Oh, you're right. So this is interesting. Oh, no, no, no. Block, block is the one. He has two utilities. One. Oh, he has, he has a half a dozen more, maybe a dozen utilities. One is called uh-huh. knock, right, knock. Right, one right. is called block, block. But the one you're talking about is block, block. For sure. Yeah. So what does it do? Okay. Um, hmm. I hadn't really looked at it. I was looking at the other one. Knock, knock. Interesting. Um, All right. What does knock, knock well, so do? I'll add that one too. Okay. Yeah. For sure. Um, knock, knock. And it shows, you know, a little hand knocking on the door. Um, see what, let me see. Continual protection. Okay, it sounds like you do something similar. Anyways, what Knock Knock does is that it looks in locations. Um, uh, for example, um, uh, locations where malware would put things so that they run when you start your computer up. Got it. Okay. Um, so, for example, and the, and then it shows here. Once you look at the screenshot, so. Um, Login items. It'll show you your login items. Uh, it'll show, let's see, startup scripts, quick look plugins, spotlight importers, etc. Interesting. Huh. And does it run all the time or is it a thing that you run 
like, you, you know, when you want to scan um, for it. It looks like you run and then it'll show you all of the uh, all of the, the startup items and whatnot that are installed. And then you can figure out if they belong or not. OK, so I think if I'm looking and understanding correctly and maybe somebody in the chat room that that use this uses this stuff can confirm for us. But I think knock knock. You're right. They do similar, very similar things. Knock knock looks to see what's persistently installed. Block block runs all the time and watches for things yes. that are put in those locations. So yeah. All right. Yeah. So they're yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Got it. Companion apps. That's great, man. Yeah. Good stuff. I gotta I should put knock knock on my computer, obviously. Cause I although I do I get some of it. it Lingon also does this. Uh I get notifications from Lingon when apps change or install things into these locations. Right. right? And, and like, it is super handy. Uh, so maybe, maybe they, they have overlapping features or at the very least, you know, complementary features. So yeah. Uh, it looks like Patrick's stuff looks at more than what Lingon looks at. So maybe Lingon is a subset of, of this. I mean, they're written by different developers, but I'm just talking functionally for us as users. So, yeah, yeah, we should be running these things or you should be running something that lets you know when when stuff is installed in these folders and locations. And I will say, at least from my experience with Lingon, these are not the alerts that you get that I get alert blindness to. Like it, it's maybe once a week that something will manipulate one of those folders for me. And it's usually during an app install or update, right? But if it's happening at another time, Mm -hmm. that's a good thing to know about. So yeah. Yeah. That's good. Very cool. All right. One last one on malware, John. Uh, Why not? Um, So Wesson gives us some feedback. So he says, I use both malware bytes and clean my Mac 10 for this function. I use Clean My Mac 10 on a regular basis and run the malware removal function several times a week. So I, I also use malware bytes occasionally. My experience is that malware bytes has found things that Clean My Mac did not. So my experience is inverse of yours. I suspect they may just not check the same things. Yeah. I think so my takeaway uh, or his takeaway is doing both is better than doing just one. I, so, I agree you. with that. My, my malware bytes is fast. Like, you know, it runs in like a minute. So, I, mm-hmm. I, you know, that that's definitely the first one I run. But if I have like the uh, like last week with this, you know, thing that malware, not malware, uh, I ran malware bytes and it didn't find anything. And so then I ran clean my max malware thing. It also didn't find anything. But, you know, it's like, OK, now I feel like if there were malware out there, unless this is a zero day thing. And it kind of was a zero day thing, except it wasn't actually malware. So it's sort of the wrong, the wrong way to look at it. But uh, but yeah, detect X, Warren says in the chat room is good as well. All right. We will put that there. Thank you, Warren. That's good stuff, man. All righty. Oh, man, we have. Oh, we have a tip that is that blew my mind when it came in from listener Dan John. So I want to I want to talk about that. But I also want to talk about our sponsors. Remember our deal, folks, Um, if that works for you. Are we uh, we good with the with the malware thing and all that stuff? All right. Mm -hmm. All right. Look, whether you're working on some personal project or managing like huge enterprise infrastructure, 
You deserve simple, affordable, and accessible cloud computing solutions that allow you to take whatever project you're working on to the next level. And this is why we love Linode and you will love Linode too at linode.com slash MGG because it's at Linode where you can simplify everything about what you're doing in the cloud. You're going to need a server for something. You already need a server for something. And Linode's Linux virtual machines allow you to develop, deploy, and scale whatever you're doing faster and easier. Their servers start at five bucks a month. Right. Like this is a no brainer, especially when you pair it with the fact that you get a hundred dollars in free credit just for being a listener of Mac Geek Cab. You'll find all the details at Linode.com slash MGG. Go check it out. Use their all SSD servers. We all know about SSDs. You've got to go check this out. They know what they're doing and you will love it. Visit Linode.com slash MGG. Click on the create free account button and you'll get started. Our thanks to Linode for sponsoring this episode. Next up is Text Expander at TextExpander.com slash podcast. You want to get it right every time and you want to do it quickly. And Text Expander makes it easy to give you and your team, if you have a business, you can share your snippets, right? You can give everybody the right words for every situation at the right time. So whether you need to keep like legal happy or really, I love this for delighting customers with effective answers, right? You can use Text Expander for all the things. Think about those frequently asked questions, frequently sent responses. This is what you'll put inside Text Expander. And then you don't have to go hunt for them. They're right there. And even better, you can take your snippets in Text Expander and put little like variable points in where when you invoke the snippet, it will ask you. All right, put the first person's first name in here. Put the product that you're talking about in here. Makes it really personal, keeps everybody happy, and keeps it accurate and glorious. And for being a Mac Geekab listener, you get 20% off your first year. Go check it out at textexpander.com slash podcast to learn more. Our thanks to Text Expander and the team at Smile for sponsoring this episode. And of course, there's Cashfly. Look, when your website doesn't load... We lose interest. When my website doesn't load, you lose interest. For each second a page takes to load, it costs a company about 16% in engagement. Fewer visitors means fewer customers. That's not good for anyone. And Cashfly has your back. In fact, Cashfly has had our back with this show for like 13 years, I want to say. And they've been awesome partners because they know how to get stuff delivered quickly where you need it and where your users need it and where our users need it. And what's even better is the good people at Cashfly are even going to provide a free optimization consultation just for being a listener of Mac Geekab. That's right. Just for you. You can know exactly where your site stands today with a Lighthouse score report and learn how Cashfly's web optimization solution can help add up to 60 points instantly to your score. Visit mac.cashfly.com. That's M-A-C dot C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. Our thanks to Cashfly for sponsoring this episode. All right. Now, I promised listener Dan we would share your tip. So, uh, Dan says... I want to let you know about a tip that greatly enhances a previous tip left by you involving the iOS 14 back tap feature. So this is a feature where you can tap the back of your phone. It's found in accessibility where lots of cool features have their starts. And of course, 
great for accessibility, but also great for other purposes too. And uh, so you can trigger things with this. And, you know, we talked about how you can trigger like scrolling and things like that, which is cool. Dan says, what you did mention is that you can do a handful of things like invoke preset features and options or more powerfully, uh, it says, or more powerfully and greatly underestimated invoke a Siri shortcut. But what if you want to double or triple tap to do or display things depending on time, location, or even triggers? This is where it gets to be a really powerful tool. And here's an example to get all of our geeky creative juices going. So he says, uh, he says, however, I realized quickly realized that I live multiple lives. And while one efficient thing was great at home, it didn't work for me at work. So I did what any geek would do. I split up my life into multiple me's, he says, and then tried to get the app to service a specific me. One me is at work. Another is at home and even a short lived me right before bed or when I first wake up. Says I wanted the double tap to do things that I most commonly do during specific times or at specific locations or even when triggers are triggered. So I created a shortcut that can look at these situations to figure out which me is double tapping based on time and figure out what I am likely to want to do at that time. It says so when I wake up, double tapping the back of my phone turns off my security system and opens the weather app. When I'm at work, it opens my FileMaker app or even runs FileMaker scripts to handle my customer invoicing, pricing, shipping. This is FileMaker, of course, adds a scary amount of power to this tip because FileMaker can also handle system-level scripts on computers and web servers. You can even nest if-then statements with selectable menu systems commands. He says, so, good stuff. Uh, he says, right, uh, when I'm at home, a double tap brings up the remote app for Apple TV so I can relax uh, to start my day or, you know, to to start my day over again. Uh, he says, and then number four, right before bed, it turns off all my lights and sets our security system using HomeKit and Home HomeBridge. He says, I find it life changing to have these customized actions that you can do at your fingertips, literally with only a few taps of your finger as if you are a wizard casting a spell. And he says, I do all of this with a single double tap. He says, I haven't even triggered anything for triple tap because I've been able to do all this. This is really smart and a great use of how shortcuts can work for you. Very cool. He says um, a few side notes that I've learned to save some time. If you use uh, this to find your location first, it takes one or two seconds to collect this info. So it might slow you down. He says, I found using time is the best way to go for me. So he's not using uh, location. He's using time. He says, maybe save location-based actions for nested options where it absolutely is needed. He says, also, in order to get time, you need it formatted correctly into the variable where all geeks can figure this stuff out as needed. So, Dan, I would love it if you would post screenshots of your Siri shortcut in uh in our forums at com slash forums because it would be great for us to see examples of how you're doing this so that we can you know take it and iterate on it and all that stuff that would be awesome but yeah i like the shortcuts are cool so i have um i am a big fan of the 20 minute nap john uh sometimes mid-afternoon like mm -hmm. three o'clock and so there are a series of things that I need to do when I take a nap. So I have created a thing where I can tell Siri nap time. And what it does is it puts my phone in do not disturb mode so that notifications on my phone and, of course, my watch aren't going to happen. Uh, 
it sets a 22 minute timer, which gives me enough time to like, you know, get snuggled up on the couch and uh, and get everything ready so that I have my 20 minute nap. And then it launches the white noise app, which I use to have, you know, nice sort of calming sounds in the in the office while I'm uh, taking a little nap on the couch. But I had a problem, John, and this is great, by the way, it can't launch white noise isn't fully scriptable into like playing the noise, or at least I haven't found a way to do that yet, but it brings it up and it's always my favorite one. I just hit play and I'm done. Well, there I would be on the couch, John drifting peacefully into a slumber and then a notification on my computer would wake me up and I'm like, okay. And I would always forget to mute the sound on my computer keyboard maestro's web interface to the rescue. There are endpoints that you can set up with keyboard maestro. And I'm, I'm sure I'm using the wrong terminology uh, because I'm thinking about it from just a web uh, standpoint, but you can set up if you go into keyboard maestro preferences web server, you can set web server enabled and then you can set a trigger for one of your actions or one of your macros in keyboard maestro. Sorry, got to keep my terminology straight to be when a specific, you know, uh, URL is called on your Mac. So now in my nap time, uh, shortcut, I have uh, one item that just says get URL, and it's a, a, the URL that triggers Keyboard Maestro to, you guessed it, mute the sound on my Mac. So now I tell, you know, my phones or even my watch, Siri, nap time, everything's set up for me. All I have to do is hit play, snuggle up, I'm good to go. I get my recharge, and the alarm wakes me up right when I want it to every time I don't miss a step. So now I could even set it to the double tap. So I'm not even having to ask the S lady to do something because the shortcuts right there. So this is, and I could even have it double tap. Like if this happens, you know, Monday through Friday between like, it's rare. I would take a nap in the morning, although I, I suppose it's probably happened, but if it happens between like one and 5 PM, all right, that double tap, that means it's nap time, but other time of day I could have it do another thing. So yeah, I like this. This is good. This is great. <laughs> Having fun with shortcuts. It's a very powerful thing. Of course, I wish it could be more powerful, as with any scripting language. As soon as you start doing stuff with it, you're like, this is amazing. You know what would be more amazing? But yeah, so you know how it goes. What do you think, John? Have you been messing with shortcuts yet? <clears throat> no. Oh, dude, you would love it. The programmer in you would go crazy with it, thinking about all the decision trees you can make and all that stuff it's um it's good it's fun mm -hmm. yeah all right i remember fiddling with them at a at one of the mac stocks mm. um, what what did the shortcut do i'm trying to remember i think it took something from your calendar and then would go to maps if mm. if the address was there which i was like hmm, that that's pretty cool that's cool yeah no yeah shortcuts are great i i love uh, i use them i use a bunch of them you know, and my my son, uh, longtime listeners know, famously created a tip calculator to make palindromes uh, to, to, to make the end grand total of the, the tab a palindrome so that when we went out to eat, you know, back when we would go out to eat, I could make the tip, you know, the, the, the thing end that way, which was great. And then when he started learning Python at Reed this semester, he's like, oh, yeah, once I got into Python, he's like, I rewrote my tip calculator this way. And I'm like, yeah, of course. 
Like if you, if you write it in objective C, now you can make it an app. So there you go. I think that's next semester or later. He's got to write a text adventure, John, for his final project for this thing. So I told him, you know, maybe, maybe start out in front of a white house. I don't know. <laughs> a text adventure. Ooh. So that gets into how to write a parser. Mm, right. Something I had to do back in the day as well. Yeah. Yeah. Or there are ways to speed that up with uh, tools, uh, open source tools. Okay. Yeah. yeah Actually, yeah. we wrote a, I remember we wrote a Java compiler, dude, just to show really? you how. Wow. How great. Yeah. Yeah. That was part of one of my, uh, one of my uh, master's uh, courses. Wow. That's pretty cool. A Java compiler. Huh. Wow. That's cool. How long did that take to do? Well, using the tools, uh, we were able to get it within the time frame of the uh, of the course. Um, but one thing I learned was, uh, and uh, so you would have one tool that would parse the grammar, which was published. Um, you know, part of the language sure. description is, uh, you know, uh, is something that you feed into a tool and it generates the code that'll, that'll parse the, uh, the source code. Um, you learn very quickly. Um, actually we learned quickly is that I think one of the sources that we had, there was a typo in it. So it would compile, it would generate something, but it would never generate code. And we're like, why isn't generating code? I thought I followed all the instructions. And then someone was like, Hey, this grammar file, the grammar definition is wrong. <laughs> Dude, that sucks. <laughs> Yeah. I hate that. Deep. Yeah, yeah. I hate it when that happens. That's gosh, that's awful. That's fun though. Mm. Very cool, oh, well. man. All right. Let's get back to uh let's get back to what we do here. So uh yes, so thank you, Dan. That's great. Listener Mike, uh follow up to episode eight twenty three, which he says, I know is a bit late, but this was a good one. He says, uh what was happening is every one of uh, listen to Ron's apps. So this is back in 823. Probably don't remember Ron, but you might remember where every time he launched uh, one of a bunch of apps, it would tell him you needed to re-verify the app. And this was just nonstop. There was no way to, to get around this. And we tried rebuilding launch services and, and things like that. And I, I don't think we ever got to the bottom of this. He says, Mike says, I think I know what is happening. It was happening to me for a very long time before I made the correlation. There is a bug associated with AirPlay 2. Many apps that need to verify with the App Store can't connect to it whenever an AirPlay 2 speaker is selected somewhere, like in the music app or the podcast app, and you are using a wired network connection. Here's an article I found, and, and we will link to it, of course, from supermegaultragroovy.com. Uh he says uh, uh, that that explains the technical reasons behind it. He says, the only solution I have found is to deselect those speakers and relaunch the desired app, which then opens without issue. Once the app is launched, you can reselect the speakers. So sounds like Keyboard Maestro might be able to automate some of that workaround for you by at least selecting your, you know, deselect the speakers do your thing, reselect the speakers. Um, but yeah, there was Chris Lissio over at, at supermegaultragroovy.com said that there there is a receipt validation code issue, but it's a system bug. So yeah, we will we will link to that. But thank you, uh, Mike, for sharing that. That's 
like nice find, by the way. I don't know how you stumbled onto that. Uh, it makes sense that Chris Lissio would stumble onto that because uh, that they he makes capo, which is a music related um, thing that slows down music so that you can play along with it. And it also breaks like it will analyze a song and put chords on it. It's really kind of amazing. Uh, and it changed. It's life changing for learning songs and, and things like that. It figures out the tempo and the time signature and the chords. And then you can slow it down and play along with it while you're learning a song. So anyway, there's a, there's a bonus cool stuff found for capo, but, uh, but so it makes sense that, that he would have found this cause he digs into, you know, that kind of stuff, but I don't know how listener Mike found it, but nice find man. So cool. Anything, any more thoughts on that, John? It's a weird one, huh? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Certificates at the root of the problem again. You know, the security yeah. thing, I always say we live on a continuum between ultra secure and ultra convenient. And, you know, it, like these little headaches that we've experienced are because the security part is creeping in. Now, that's not necessarily a bad thing at a, you know, from a 10,000 foot view that when you're experiencing it in the moment, it's like, I wish I could just turn off the security so I could run my app. Well, yes, except, you know, maybe not. All right. Uh, where are we here? I know that I have this thing because it's very cool, but I don't seem to have it in our list. John, did I? Mm -hmm. The next one from listener Jeff. Are you seeing it in our list here, my friend? Because it's a cool. Oh, no, I got it right here. I got it. All right. So yeah. listener Jeff says uh, in show 837, you asked toward the end of the show about whether other devices on the local network could share the UPS status that the Synology gets via USB. So to explain this, if you have a UPS, uh, not the brown truck that comes and delivers goodies from Apple, but if you have an, a battery backup power supply, right, that you plug, if you plug your Mac into it, uh, many of these have USB ports on the side of them. You can plug your Mac directly into it with USB, and then Energy Saver lights up a whole new panel that lets you decide how you want to shut down your Mac when the UPS says it's running out of juice. So your Mac will automatically shift to battery power because that's how that works uh, of the UPS. The, well, really, it's the UPS will shift to battery power. Your Mac won't know, except your Mac will know because it'll tell it and it'll say, look, there's only five minutes of juice left. So your Mac will automatically and politely shut down. And that way, uh, you know, hopefully all your data is saved, even if you're not right there. Well, there's only one USB port on these things and the Synologies, you can plug one in. And then if you have multiple Synologies, they will all subscribe to that one Synology's data. So when that one says it's time to shut down, it broadcasts that out. Everybody you know, gets the signal and everybody shuts down. And I posited, wouldn't it be great if my Mac could subscribe to that same signal? Well, Turns out, and it's not just listener Jeff, listeners Daniel and Dennis also had this in. In fact, it's possible even in that episode, we had a cool stuff found so far down the bottom of the list that we hadn't gotten to it about a thing called network UPS tools. Okay. And network UPS tools is a series of command line stuff for doing exactly this, subscribing to these types of power alerts. Um, as Jeff continued, though, he says, I didn't really have the time or know how to figure everything out. But then in the Mac App Store, 
I found UPS Power Monitor. Uh, and it's a great little app that will connect to your Synology's network UPS server and keep your Mac informed of its UPS power status. And of course, it has a companion app, PowerGuard, that will take care of gracefully powering off your Macs when the UPS drops below 20%. He says, I've tested it a bit to the extent I'm comfortable pulling the plug on my Synology anyway, and it has worked great. He says, I hope this works for you guys and uh, keeps you from getting caught without power. So this is great. Yeah. So thank you to Daniel and Dennis for sending in the items about network UPS tools. And thank you to Jeff for finding and sending in the UPS power monitor, because that's going to be the trick there. So very cool stuff, folks. Thank you for sending that along. It's good. It's good. It's good. It's good. Have you messed with that yet, John? Cause I know you, this is like perfect for you, right? Cause you have one Synology and it, you have like you have everything in your you have two Synologies, but you have everything. You have your Mac and your Synologies all plugged into the same power source. You don't run a UPS yet. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Or you do? No. Oh, oh, well, then, yes. So UPS, my friend, that will save you. I can't imagine running electronics without power conditioned power with a battery backup. It just it seems like it seems like it might. uh it might not end well. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> Made it this far. Well, you know, that's, <laughs> that's, yeah, that is true. That is true. <laughs> uh, you've made it this far without needing your backups too, but you know, but. You know. Oh no, I've, I've, I've gotten this far. I've, I've had to use my backups. You've had to use your backups. That's good. That's good. <clears throat> All right. Oh, yeah. Uh, there was a tip from listener Christopher that you found my friend, right? Yeah. So this is a, this is a good geeky option here. Um, so Christopher says the Unix built in option for preventing auto mounting of drives is to make an entry in slash ETC slash FS tab for the drive. You don't want auto mounted at startup. Um, and he uh, listed a few entries in his uh, FS tab file. Um, and the basic format of it is you enter the UUID of the drive, and it's a big, long hexadecimal thing. Uh, then you say none, HFS or APFS. You got to get it right. And then RW, comma, no auto, and that will prevent auto mounting of a partition. And so I'm like, huh, you know what? Let me try this and see if it works. Uh, and it did. So I checked my FS tab file. Surprisingly, there was some ancient stuff in there. Uh, APFS entries, which no longer existed. Um, so I, I gave it a try with one of my carbon copy cloner backups. Um, now the first thing you may want to ask yourself, Dave is how do I get the UUID of my drive? Um, this you can get it if you go into disk utility and then you click on our partition and then you you'll see a little circle with an i in it which means info if you click on that it'll spit out a whole bunch of info about the drive including the uuid um so i tried it now here's the only annoying thing dave um text it, uh, and and it's just a text file so i'm like oh well let me uh, open it with text edit oh no. um and change it. Um, here, here's the, the, the here's the tip. Um, 
TextEdit and other text editors would complain about not having enough permissions. Right. When I tried to save the file and I'm like, what? It's my file. Why can't I save to it, man? Um, well, it's because Etsy, FSTab, yeah, it needs to be root writable only, right? On your system? Yeah, and it said like custom permissions or something like that. And even even if I change them, it, it still wouldn't let me do that. Um, here's how you get around that. Um, use an editor from the command line. I used Pico was the uh, first one I came across that uh, worked. So if you run a, a editor, yeah, if you if you edit it with a command line editor like a, a Pico, that then it saves fine. So. Just a little hitch. But wouldn't like FS tab can't be edited by a non root user. Right. So were you well, already sudoed as root at the command line? And that's why Pico worked because otherwise to edit FS tab, you'd have to be like, you'd have to do sudo Pico. Etsy FS tab. Nah, I just did Pico. We're hmm. fine. Hmm. Interesting. I don't have an FS tab on my, uh, on this machine here, which is weird, right? You're saying it's just at Etsy mm-hmm. FS tab, right? Slash ETC slash mm-hmm. FS tab, right? Yeah, I don't have one. That's interesting. Well, man, maybe I, I it, Unix used to require like it, you FS tab used to be the thing that it, it that controlled how everything was mounted. Maybe that's not the case anymore. Maybe it's only using it for like these types of things here. Because, yeah, I don't have <laughs> FS tab. So, yeah. Interesting. Oh, this is kind of funny. So, I'm looking on my mini. Yeah. And I did a, a and there's a FS tab.hd file. Uh, if you print it, it says, ignore this file. This file does nothing, contains no useful data, and might go away in future releases. Do not depend on this file or its contents. Makes sense. Mm. Yeah. Makes <laughs> sense. Yeah. Um, I'm going to point out something, though, John, you missed out mm-hmm. on using your own tip because a couple of episodes ago, you talked about how great the BB edit command line tools were. And mm-hmm. you need to teach your fingers about this tip because uh, right, because instead of using Pico and having to, like, navigate the the editor with arrow keys and all that. If from the command mm-hmm. line, you type BB edit space Etsy FS tab, it will open it in BB edit and then you can edit with all your glory mm-hmm. and just hit save. So and if you need mm-hmm. it to open as sudo, you can do that from the I, at least I've done right, that right, from, right. you know, from the thing. So I'm looking to see if I have an FS tab file. Yeah, I do have one downstairs. Yeah, interesting. Fascinating. All right. Good stuff, man. I like it. I like it. I like it. How are we doing on time? We're 106. Okay. Good. Uh, let's go to Andrew. One of our favorite topics here as we get there. Why is my mouse acting weird? Uh, Andrew asks, very simply, any clear advantages to purchasing slash upgrading from my second gen Eero Pro with two beacons to the new Eero Pro with Wi-Fi 6? So I want to zoom out on this a bit. Uh, and just talk about the benefits of Wi-Fi 6 versus Wi-Fi 5. I think that's a good way to kind of go about this. Uh, my Eero Pros will be arriving this tomorrow, today, the day this show releases. 
And so we will have more to talk about those in particular uh, as as time moves forward. But uh, I have this week been testing the TP-Link Deco Wi-Fi 6 system, the, the, specifically the Deco X60. So it's a, a dual radio Wi-Fi 6 system. And it's been a mesh system, right? So, uh, it, and, and it's been fantastic using Wi-Fi 6. It's, it's great. So from a mesh standpoint, to me, the biggest benefit is having Wi-Fi 6 on the backhaul, right? If you're doing wireless backhaul, which most people with mesh are, then having Wi-Fi 6, having your two mesh points or three mesh points talk with each other using Wi-Fi 6 in many cases will more than double the backhaul bandwidth. And that can make a huge difference in what it can do on the front hall for all of your devices. And effectively, then that gives you more range because if you're getting more bandwidth, you can go further uh, than than you otherwise could. And then obviously, you know, and, and so on that front, I in my house, uh, it, my house itself can be covered very well by two mesh points, one essentially on one side of the house on the top floor. There's, it, the house effectively has three floors. It's a finished basement. But anyway, so one unit on one end of the house, top floor. Another unit, other end of the house, middle floor, and that does it. That that covers the house really, really well. And then a third unit over here in the office. That's that's how mesh works here. Normally, those two units in the house are wi are wire wired backhaul using Mocha, which is a little funky sometimes, as we talked about, but generally quite reliable and and fast. If I use wireless backhaul with Wi-Fi five, John, so current, previous, whatever you want to call it. The, the Wi-Fi that we've had forever between those two points. It's a, it's a long haul. It's through many rooms and a floor and, you know, I can get maybe a hundred megabits, 120. I mean, it's not terrible, but it's not great. And Mocha usually gets me about 800, right? So like that, that's good for me. So I tried this with the Deco Wi-Fi six and I got like 400 megabits across this same wire wireless link it's like okay so still not the mocha but like it's a really non-optimal thing if i were doing this wireless i would not have that access point where it is i would have it closer to the other one so that it could you know essentially broadcast and and echo uh, that signal to where I need it. But because I have the ability to plug in wired, that's where I choose to do it. But just having it there is a great test case. And I was impressed. I mean, it was almost triple the speed that I would get with uh, Wi-Fi five wireless backhaul. So for a mesh system, especially if you're using wireless backhaul, which again, most people are right. Most of us do. This really can make a difference. And then there's the front hall speeds connecting to your Wi-Fi six clients. Right. And, Right now, Wi-Fi 6 clients, as we were just talking about, uh, your iPad Pros have, you know, the newer iPads. And I think it was last year's iPhones 11. So the iPhone 11, uh, the Pro and Max, the iPhone SE 2020, and then, of course, all the iPhones 12 all have Wi-Fi 6 in them. So I took my 12 Pro in the same room as the Ethernet connected, you know, Wi-Fi 6 base station. I got... Um, 
John, I was getting like 900 megabits per second on this thing, which is, you know, basically gigabit ethernet speeds in the same room, which is pretty cool. It would be nice when Macs have Wi-Fi 6. I think Apple might be waiting for Wi-Fi 6E before starting to bake those chips into Macs. Um, hmm. Maybe, you know, Wi-Fi 6 runs over the same 5 gigahertz radio spectrum that Wi-Fi 5 does. Wi-Fi 6E adds 6 gigahertz to it. So shorter range, greater bandwidth. Um, so uh, it, maybe that's why. I don't. I can't make sense of what apple's choices are so yeah so so anyway so those are those are to me those are the definite benefits the back haul in a huge way um and then and then the front hall obviously is right there you know so to answer your question though upgrading from wi-fi 5 to wi-fi 6 if the if the only feature difference is wi-fi 5 to wi-fi 6 and wi-fi 5 is working for you I mean, it's it's going to make it better technically, but experientially, will it matter? Well, it depends on what your scenario is, how fast you need data to transfer. Is it transferring that fast? Like all of these questions now, specifically with upgrading from, you know, second gen Eero Pro to the new Eero Pro with Wi-Fi 6. Uh, I can tell you that, you know, we know that the the new Wi-Fi 6 Eero has a Zigbee radio in it. So you don't have to also run separate uh, smart home hubs. And that a is a benefit from a cost standpoint, because you don't have to have them. But even if you do have them turning those off and letting one device manage any radio frequency contention between those, because a lot of the Zigbee stuff runs it at, at 2.4. Isn't that right, John? Or is that, oh, no, just the Bluetooth stuff runs at 2.4, right? Uh, is it 900? I think you're right. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I think you're right. Zigbee's at 900 megahertz. But, you know, managing those radios, having radios close to each other is never good, even if they're on different frequencies. So having, and having, you know, all of your mesh points be Zigbee access points or, or Zigbee hub points as opposed to just one is definitely, you know, an improvement. So that excites me about the Eero Pro. Another thing I should just note for anybody that's, that's looking into this right now, Eero 6, Wi-Fi 6 units are not yet HomeKit certified. Uh, I'm presumably Eero is working on that, you know, with Apple or Apple is working on it, whatever that process looks like, you know, it's got to be in the, in the pipeline, but uh, out of the gate, the things that will arrive this week are not uh, home kit enabled. So if that's an important thing to you with your router, hold off until, you know, that, that gets there. So, yeah. So I don't know. That's that's my thought on this. What about you, John? Um, no, Z Zigbee is a two point four. Zigbee I mean, is two point four. Nine hundred. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. So even even all the more reason to have one device managing those multiple radios. Yeah. Very interesting. Very interesting. Cool. I, so they only have Zigbee, not Z-Wave. That's disappointing. Hmm. Uh, I think. I think it was all my stuff is Z wave. Oh, is that right? I don't think I have any smart home stuff that's Zigbee. Hmm. I thought, I thought, yeah, no, you're right. They are different things. Let's see. Wi-Fi six. Where are all the specs here? Technology. Uh -huh. mm. 
Zigbee, here. 800 to 900 megahertz. So, Oh, so Zigbee is in the 900 megahertz range. Z-Wave is 2.4. Is that what you said? No, no. Re- reverse that. <laughs> Z-Wave okay. is 8 to 900 and Zigbee is 2.4. Thank you. Okay. Just trying to make sense of all this. Yeah, so they've got every all Aero Six systems are equipped with a built-in Zigbee smart home hub, and eliminating the need for additional Zigbee hubs around the home. So there you go. Yeah, Zigbee mm-hmm. built-in, which is great. I mean, it much better than the the what did they have before that no one used the not Edge. I don't know, whatever. It doesn't matter. It's you know now mm-hmm. we Thread was the 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 thing that never caught on. Right. 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 So yeah, very cool. Very cool. All right. Uh, you want to take us to the next question, John? I think we got time for a couple more. Uh, let's see here. And our next question, I believe, is... Dave. Dave? Yes. So Dave yes. says, oh, not, not really me. a question, just more of a comment or editorial. So, okay, I'm, I'm up for that. Um, I do... Uh, I do full image backups weekly to multiple backup drives, and I have Backblaze doing online backups of all my data. I use my Mac heavily every day. I do not run Time Machine, and I've not done so since 2013. My reasons for not running it are, I've never had an occasion where I had to recover an older version of documents when it was not available from from an old image backup or from Backblaze. Uh, Time Machine is a resource sink consuming disk and cpu that would be better used for original documents and data i remember one show where yeah you backup d all of a sudden ran on your machine and you're like why is it doing this right because <laughs> it was using process yeah, i like yeah um, i like my cpu to be used for the things i need you know i'm doing a thing right now so yeah yeah yeah, yeah. um time machine backups get corrupted okay fair point occasionally it have to be rebuilt from scratch um, everyone's scenario is different. I suppose that if you didn't have Backblaze or similar online backup, then Time Machine is important to have. However, if you are already doing online backup, then I think the benefits of Time Machine are marginal and its cost in terms of lost storage and CPU is quite high, especially so for laptop users who don't have a lot of storage at all times. Okay. Um, all right. So the good news is that it sounds like He's more or less adhering to the three, two, one backup rule. What is that, you ask? And I think I got it right this time. I think we got it wrong once before. Um, but most backup experts uh, say that you should have, at the very least, three copies of your data, one primary and two backups, two different types of media, and one off-site. Did I get that right? I hope so. Yeah, um, sure. But there's but there's nothing saying you can't have more backup destinations. And I think Time Machine, while not a good primary backup, so I'm with you on that. I would not use Time Machine as my only backup uh, because of uh, mostly the reliability. I found it not. It, it, I think we've all had a Time Machine backup get corrupted and say, hey, you got to rebuild it. And I'm like, no. Oh. Um, what I do to get around that, Dave, is that I actually back up my Time Machine backups on my Synology. So um, if one gets corrupted, I've been able to go back and and restore a prior one. Have you Um, tried, instead of backing it up, have you tried using snapshots on your backup store so that you could just restore to a prior snapshot, saving you the time and and data? Like, this seems to be the perfect use of snapshots to me. Yes, I have 
done that in the past. Yeah, if, if you boot into recovery, you can you can roll back. No, I, I mean on your once. Synology, have you used snapshots? No. Okay, because this would save you a ton of bandwidth, right? Of of and and storage mm-hmm. space. I don't know. It, it like seems like maybe a perfect use of snapshots. So, hmm. Yeah, I, I, I'll I'll have to dabble with that. Yeah. Um, yeah. I've um, I've started doing that, but I haven't had a backup corrupt since I did. So I I can't like <laughs> I haven't been able to test it. So yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So, uh, all right. So to continue, it doesn't hurt to have another destination if if you have the resources available. Sure. But if you are going to use Time Machine, then you absolutely have to get Time Machine Editor because the default behavior of time machine is to back up every hour and in my humble opinion that's too frequent i also exclude large items uh like my photo library because yeah. that would chew all my bandwidth or, or it, it, it just takes really long so that's another strategy that i use uh i don't back up my photo library and i don't back up my uh parallels vms because they're also huge like multiple gigabytes um but the nice thing about Time Machine Editor, to his point about resources, is that ha- it has a backup when inactive option. So it should only run when you're not doing anything else important, in theory. Um, as for disk space, I'll, I'm, I'm with you on that, though. You know, storage is cheap, but that's, that's a relative term. I mean, personally, Dave, I have, on both my Synologies, I have tens of terabytes, and I'm only using about a quarter of the data a quarter on on each one of mine. So. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I well, I store a lot of movies on mine, and and that takes mm-hmm. up quite mm-hmm. a bit. And I have, uh, you know, four or five Macs that back up Time Machine to him. So, and I store a copy of my photos library, which isn't huge, you know, but every everybody in the family syncs their photos libraries to it. So, I think I use. Well, I mean, I could mm-hmm. look, but I'm always at about sixty to seventy percent usage on on whatever storage I have. Oh, um, all right. Yeah, but I mean, like, it's just it's just how we use things. There's nothing Mm -hmm. there's nothing wrong with that. It'll it'll start complaining when you hit it's either 85 or 90, but then it's easy. Yeah, I've got uh, I've got. Well, I'm using 21 terabytes and I have 15 available. So I'm right at 60 percent. So which is great. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Cool. All right. Uh, Yeah. Moving on to listener David from listener Dave from host Dave. Uh, David says. uh, On the subject of USB-C ports, he says, I charged my MacBook Pro with a USB-C cord coming from my Dell monitor. Says I like the neatness of it all. One port, monitor, power, great. Uh, but he was having some weirdness with USB-C, and he was asking, "Are does it matter if he uses a USB-C cable from his Dell monitor to charge his laptop, or from his Apple power supply?" And we've dug into this a little bit, and he, he's come up with a weird thing. On the surface, to me, power delivery is power delivery, right, John? So if it is truly adhering to the power delivery standard, which I would presume a Dell monitor to do, of course, you know, proof is always in the pudding. But uh, yeah, I, I would say that that, that would be fine. Uh, however, 
he was having some weird issues. And so my advice to all of us, because we're geeks, but also for a scenario like this is to dig in a little bit and take a look at what your computer is actually getting from the power source. So you can, you can do this two ways and I highly recommend doing both. The first way is easy. You already have all the tools you need. When you plug your, uh, you know, computer into power, wait, well, you can do this right away, but it helps. It, it often takes your computer a few seconds to figure out like what it's going to do with the power that's coming in and whether it's going to start charging or all of that, but go into system information. So, you know, the easiest way to get there is hold down option on the Apple menu and choose system information on the left-hand side. You will see power at the bottom of the, the power page. You will see charging status. From there, you can look and see what the wattage of the charger is that's connected, or at least what it's reporting to your Mac, and then whether your Mac is charging or not. That's very handy. And one weird thing David found was on his four-port MacBook Pro, his Dell monitor would report, uh, I think it was 60 watts, uh, maybe 65 watts, on the two left ports. And like nothing on the right ports, which is weird because his 60 watt Apple charger reported 60 watts on all four ports. So that's fascinating. And it tells me that there's some inconsistency with power delivery and the way it's being handled. The other thing that you want to do is to test what's actually happening across the USB port. And for that, you need to spend eh, about 20 bucks, maybe, maybe a little bit less. Get a USB power tester. And if you don't already have one, I'll put a link in the show notes to one that will do both USB-A and USB-C. So you have it all in one. And these things are just little inline devices that show that have an LED screen on them. And they just show what is happening across the link power wise. And it's super handy to be able to see what's going on. And uh, like I said, the one that I'll put in the show notes has both, which is even better. So you can you can use it for USB-C and USB-A that will tell you, OK, yes, power actually really is coming in and how much is coming in. Now, if your Mac is fully charged or even close to fully charged, it's not going to be pulling nearly as much power as it would when it's like 40 or 50 percent charged. So that's a good spot to test it. Let your Mac get down to that, you know, 30, 40 percent range. Plug it in, let it and you'll see it ramp up as it you know, negotiates the, the thing and starts pulling more power and all that stuff. This is your Mac doing this, uh, generally not the device on the other end. So, yeah. So I, I would, I, I like, I like seeing what's going on in these scenarios and I don't have an answer for why David's right two ports are charging differently than the left two ports. If you all do, you know, geek challenge feedback at MacGeekGab.com, We'd love to hear about it. So, Mr. Braun, are you muted? Because I can't hear you. I can see that you are speaking, but there is no sound coming from the Mr. Braun. There's still no sound coming from the Mr. Braun. This is interesting. Speak again? Why? Are you muted here? No. Very interesting. I'm getting no sound from Mr. Braun. Talk one more time, John. Why am I not getting sound from Mr. Braun? This is weird. Let's do that. Try again. Nothing. 
Nothing from Mr. Braun. Well, that's fun, isn't it? Hang on one second. Let me see if we can fix this before we uh, before we come out. All right. Well, you know, Logic had a had a moment where it wanted to lose track of Mr. Braun's audio. So you were saying, my friend. Oh, yeah. Uh, power delivery. Uh, the, this was interesting. So uh, I, I have one of those USB-C meters as well, Dave. Um, the iPad Air that I got comes with, I think it's a 20 watt charger. Um, but I plugged it into one of my power delivery uh, anchor uh, uh, things that have USB-C. I think it's 85 watts. And the at times it would be showing it drawing more than 20 watts, which I thought was interesting. But. Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, it, you know, depending on depending on how, you know, how low the charge is on it. Yeah, I would think it could it could mm -hmm. draw more. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty cool. All right. Uh, I don't know why logic did what it did, but, you know, that's how it goes. Huh. Yeah. Um, all right. Where are we on time? I think I think that's going to have to be the end. I would love to keep uh, going here. So but, you know, uh, we're at an hour and a half. John. This next one could no this next one could be quick. OK. No. All right. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Take it, man. Quick. All right. Uh, let me bring up the question here. <laughs> He says quickly. Uh, there we go. Okay, so Wayne has a question. Um, do you guys actually use Mint Mobile for your cellular service? Yes. <laughs> and if so, how does it work with your new iPhone 12? What well, I, don't, I don't have one yet. Um, well, personally, here's my setup, Dave, and I think you had some feedback as well. But personally, I use Verizon for my uh, on my phone, and I use, but I do use Mint for data on my shiny new iPad Air. Um, my thought was, so here's kind of a mini tip. My thought was once I get an iPhone 12, I could eSIM my existing, uh, iPhone eight to it and then use mint in dual SIM mode on the iPhone. If I need to use it for telephony stuff versus data stuff. Um, alas, Dave, there's an article saying, uh, you can't do this yet. Correct. Um, yeah, and Apple has an article saying using 5G with your iPhone uh, and the line here specifically when using two lines in dual SIM mode, 5G data isn't supported on either line and will fall back to 4G LTE. Here's the good news, though. I found this great article over at uh, MacObserver.com, Dave, titled iPhone 12 dual SIM 5G to arrive later this year in an update. Hooray. So yep. that, that's the answer. Yeah. Yeah. I, so as far as, you know, Mint Mobile goes, they are a T-Mobile MVNO, mobile voice network operator or something, So, which essentially means they use T-Mobile's hardware, their their network, and then Mint handles the billing. Right. And which is why they're able to do things the way they do them and get it so much cheaper than than everything else, because you're buying things in different ways from them. Right. Uh, but. If T-Mobile has 5G where you are, Mint has 5G where you are. This is just how that works. And there is no additional surcharge from Mint for using 5G and all that good stuff. So, yeah, it it it, it just works. Yeah, it's, I mean, it works with the iPhone yeah. 12. Unfortunately, Dave, it, unfortunately, it, uh, from what I can tell, Dave, um, the iPad Air does not support 5G, or at least the one that I just got. 
That is correct. The only Apple devices that support 5G are the iPhones 12, right? That the, they are because they, okay. they don't have the antenna. Like the, your iPad doesn't have a 5G antenna in it, right? It's got, it's just got LTE antennas in it. So, and the chip, it, yeah. the cellular chip. But you know, the, the speed, you know, the speed that I get through mint is um, at least where I am uh, here in Fairfield, Connecticut, Dave. Um, I generally get better speeds from mint than I do from Verizon. So, oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, I don't know why you're not using uh, Mint on your for LTE. I don't know why you're not using Mint on your phone, man. Like it's just, everything you're saying does. There's there's like a disconnect here. You would you would do well, better, faster, cheaper. has. Yeah, well, I I'd, I'd have to give the number to. I'd have to give everybody a different number. I no, I've had Verizon. No, forever, no, no. So. Please, please do not misinform our listeners, especially about one of our sponsors. You can absolutely port your number to Mint. No problem. I, I, no, I know. I could. Okay. <laughs> like You can take your, your number that you have with any other cell carrier and port it to Mint. It is not a problem. It's, it's totally handled. Mm-hmm. They, like, it, I mean, every, to be fair, that's true with every cell carrier. Like it, Porting numbers is just mm-hmm. not a big deal. So you can take your number. You can port it to Mint. And if you decide down the road you don't like Mint, you can port it to AT&T. If you decide you don't like AT&T, you can port it to Verizon. You could round robin that sucker as much as you want. It's your number. You can take it with you. Absolutely. And, mm-hmm. and Mint is definitely one of the places to which you may take it. So, yes. Very, very simple. Very, very simple. Don't, don't let – for any of you out there listening, don't let that be – the reason you don't switch uh, to any provider, you, you know, this isn't a mint sponsor spot. They do happen to be a sponsor, which I presume is why uh, Wayne asked about mm-hmm. it. But yeah, no, dude, like it's 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 trivial to port your number these days. Really, really easy. So, yeah. OK, got it. All right. Yeah. Thank you for opening my eyes. Yeah, man. So. Absolutely. No, I think you would like better speeds, you know, better pricing, better all that. Like, yeah, be good. All right. And let me know if you need any help because, you know, we have our friends at Mint. So. Uh, if you have any questions, as I said earlier, feedback at MacGeekUp.com. We would love to hear from you. Yeah. I'll say it one more time, I guess. Maybe, John, your audio cut out again. I don't know. No, no, it didn't. Uh, I, I heard you say feedback at MacGeekUp.com. There it is. All right. Thank you so much for listening, folks. Thanks for contributing all your questions, your tips, your cool stuff found, all of it. Thanks to everybody in the chat room at live.macgeekab.com. Excellent, excellent stuff. Great to um, great to have you all here. Great to have you all as listeners. Really, I, I will ask you uh, something I've been asking you very frequently is just tell somebody else about the show. That's it. It's all that, that like find find a friend, find a group of friends, tell them about the show, tell them they can send their questions in. We would love to uh, to welcome more people into the Mac Keycap family. It's good for all of us. It really truly is. So thank you, thank you. Uh, thanks to of course all of our sponsors. You remember our deal? I got through it, it was three minutes and like forty seconds. So I, I, I did it. Uh, Linode.com slash MGG, TextExpander.com slash podcast, Mac.cashfly.com. Of course, all of you. John, do you have anyone you want to thank? Anything you want to say before we get out of here? No. All right. Cool. Well, 
then we will see you next week. Uh, you know, our other sponsors, of course, Otherworld Computing at MaxSales.com, Barebones Software at Barebones.com, Eero.com slash MGG. All good stuff. We'll be back next week. That's how it works. Thanks for listening. Long show, 135. Might be the longest yet. John, what do you what do you what do you think? Anything left? One last thing, maybe? Uh, yeah. Anything left? I got one thing left, Dave, and that is don't get caught. Made up.